Let's bow our heads in prayer and uh, let's uh, commit the teaching of God's word into his hands. Lord God Almighty, we turn to you again this morning and we ask, Father God, that you would open up your word to us to help us to understand what we're reading, to speak to us personally, individually, to encourage and to help us in our walk and our relationship with you. Lord, we ask for an encounter with you and a blessing upon my lips as I speak and a blessing upon our ears as we listen. To the glory and the honour of your name. Amen. So we're continuing our studies through the book of Joshua and uh, my goal is to go through chapter 14 and chapter 15 this morning, God willing. So can you turn to Joshua chapter 14 please? And what I'm going to do is uh, read the first five verses. These are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. Their inheritance was by lot, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, for the nine tribes and the half-tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half-tribe on the other side of the Jordan, but to the Levites he had given no inheritance among them. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they gave no part to the Levites in the land except cities to dwell in, with their common lands for their livestock and their property. As the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. So as we go into chapter 14, what we are looking at is Joshua begins to divide the land west of the Jordan. Last time we saw the division of the land on the east side and that was divided between the half tribe of Manasseh, Gad and Reuben. The remaining tribes now get their apportionment, their assignment on the west side. And as we go into uh, first verse one, we see that this, the division was administered by three branches of authority. There was a religious authority demonstrated by Eleazar, who was the high priest. There was political authority represented by Joshua, who was the kind of like the national leader, if you like. And then it was also administered by tribal authority, uh, by the heads of each of the tribes of Israel. And so with these three in positions of authority, um, the uh, distribution of the land was organised. And we can actually know the name of these tribal heads because they are given to us in Numbers 34, verses 16 to 29. Now, I won't read out those verses to you, but there's the names just for a point of reference. And we can see right up the top there that the tribe of Judah, which is the one tribe that we're going to be concentrating upon this morning, had a tribal uh, chief or a tribal head whose name was Caleb. And Caleb, of course, we have encountered before. He and Joshua, along with 10 other spies, went to spy out the land uh, just after they had come into the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. So what would happen is that um, the three branches of authority would administer the initial division of the land uh, between the tribes, but then the tribal chiefs would then administer their own particular division to all the different families within their tribe. 
so it was a cascading level of authority bringing down. But perhaps what is most important to recognise is that these three branches of authority were appointed by God, not by man. I'm just going to read to you a couple of verses from Numbers 34, where it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance. Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and you shall take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for the inheritance. So this is the Lord speaking to Moses, telling him how the land is to be divided. And so that was foretold many years before, and now it's come to fruition. So these people had been appointed and knowing that they were going to be dividing the land for some time. And as we go on to verse 2 of Joshua 14, we read there, Their inheritance was by lot, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, for the nine tribes and the half tribe. So can you try to imagine a situation where you've got this massive piece of real estate? You've got uh, tribes who all want a piece of this real estate. They've spied out the land. They know exactly what is good land, what is bad land. There's millions of people and they're all vying for their bit. How is it best done to organise and administer the division of the land? I mean, I, I don't I don't care how good a statesman or politician you are to try and effectively execute that task of dividing the land peaceably without uh, chance of dissent um, is really Operation Poison Chalice. There's just no way that you can execute it in your own strength. So what they do is they do the casting of the lot. And by casting of the lot, they put the matter into God's hands and it is God who chooses which tribe goes to which plot of land. So the matter is taken out of human hands and it's placed firmly into the hands of God. And there is a proverb, Proverbs 16, verse 33. And that says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So this was the way in the Old Testament that they would determine the will of God. It was probably executed using the Urim and the Thummim, two stones that were kept in the uh, ephod of the high priest. We don't quite know how the Urim and the Thummim worked, but it was used to determine the will of God. We know also that as we come into the New Testament and at the start of the book of Acts, they used the uh, casting of Lot then to be able to determine um, who should be the uh, 12th disciple. If you remember, Judas Iscariot had uh, disqualified himself from the role of disciple and had uh, hung himself. And so the remaining 11 uh, apostles got together and they determined by Lot that Matthias should be the 12th apostle, the 12th disciple. Now, I think it's important to point out that even though they used the casting of the lot to determine the will of God at the time of the dividing of the land, and they still used casting of the lot to determine the will of God at the time of uh, the disciples choosing Matthias, we do not seek the will of God today through the casting of the lot. And that is because all of these events that I've referred to happened before the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We do not put choices in a hat, pray and then elect one blindfolded 
and use that as a way of determining God's direction. Why do we not do that? Well, it's open to misdirection. You can place two options in a hat and then not know that God, God's will is a third direction that you've not yet heard of. Uh, also, casting the lot does not require faith or relationship with God. Anyone could put names in a hat and pull out a, a name from the hat. But as I've said before, we now have the Holy Spirit. And with the counsel of the word of God and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can be directed by God to uh, his will and to the things that he wants us to do. But sometimes determining the will of God um, takes time. There needs to be a period of time of waiting upon the Lord. And that can be difficult. I mean, when you're casting the lot, you get the decision almost instantly. But waiting upon the Lord takes time. And that causes you to rely upon God. It might cause you to fast and to pray in a deeper measure and to seek God in a way you've never done before. And so God does not want us to use the casting of the lot today because he wants us to spend time in prayer and develop and cultivate a relationship with him. And only once we've developed that relationship with him will his will become clear and transparent to us. So when it comes to the administration of Calvary Chapel Maidstone, we don't cast the lot, but we seek God's will in prayer. We look for the guidance and uh, the uh, word from the Holy Spirit. And if need be, we pray and fast. So the land was eventually divided. And here we have the land that was to be divided. Uh, on the east side, we see Manasseh, Gad and Reuben. The three territories there and we've kind of got a bit of an issue that I wanted to go through you see there are 12 tribes but I wonder whether you can see there are 14 territories how do you fit 12 tribes into 14 territories how does that work we need to go and look at the rights of the firstborn the rights of the firstborn now in Israeli culture the firstborn son of an Israelite carried with it a threefold birthright. If you were the firstborn male, you were to inherit the position of authority and family. You would also inherit a double portion. So when it came to dividing out the inheritance of the father when he died, the, the firstborn son would get a double portion of land. And the reason he would get a double portion of land is so that he could farm land for himself and his family but also he could farm the land to provide for his uh, parents in their old age. But also the firstborn son would be the priest of the family. He would be the spiritual head of the family. So they were the rights of the firstborn. Now, the firstborn of Jacob was Reuben. And so Reuben should have got all these uh, rights of the firstborn. But what he ended up doing was sleeping with his father's concubine. And it was so offensive to Jacob that he disqualified himself from the rights of the firstborn. And so the rights were divided between three other sons of Jacob. Judah inherited the position of authority. Joseph uh, inherited the uh, blessing of double inheritance or double portion. And Levi inherited the right of priesthood. And so we see as the history of Israel continues, Judah became the authority in Israel 
and all the kings came from Judah. Joseph received a double portion. And we know that Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, became the half tribes. And so they got the double portion there. And Levi, of course, became the priests of Israel. They were the ones that were to communicate God's will to the people and to intercede for the people to God and to communicate and help them to understand the word of God. So what happens with these 12 tribes and how do they fit into the 14 territories that were assigned in the land? Well, we know first and foremost that they didn't all have one territory each, because if they did, there would be two territories outstanding. But what we also know is that Levi didn't get any territory in the land. Levi uh, was to serve the people, to be priests to the people. And the people every year were to bring tithes to the temple or to the tabernacle, a percentage of their agricultural growth. And with that tithe, they were able to support the Levi's. And with the support of the Levi's, the Levi's didn't have to worry about cultivating the land to support themselves. They could give themselves wholly to the service of God and to the ministry of the temple. So therefore, the Levi's didn't need to work the land. They didn't need territory. But that brings us down to 11 territories, sorry, 14 territories, but divided between 11 tribes. How does that work? Well, as I've said, Joseph was divided into two, the double portion. Ephraim and Manasseh, they they had uh, a territory each. So that brings it up to, back up to 12 uh, territories being occupied and two outstanding. But what we also see is that Manasseh had two territories, one east and one west. So that now makes 13 territories occupied and one outstanding. But what we'll eventually find in history is that Dan gets an extra territory as well. He had territory um, in the midpoint of the country, which was coastal. But in Judges 18, he was able to claim a further part of the promised land in the north. If we look at those territories... We've got 14 territories. In those territories, we can see those that are assigned to the sons of Joseph, Manasseh on the east, Manasseh on the west, Ephraim on the west. But then we can see the two areas that are assigned to Dan, numbers 7 and 14 on the map. And so that's how we end up with 14 territories being occupied by not actually 12 tribes, but 11 tribes effectively. Let's move forward into... Uh, the word of God. And I'm going to read from Joshua 14 verses 6 to 15. Then in the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I was brought back And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke the word to Moses, while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. 
As yet I am as strong this day as I was on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now therefore give me this mountain of which the Lord has spoken in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kirjath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. So, the first tribe to be assigned an inheritance west of the Jordan was Judah. And so the children of Judah all gather at Joshua's headquarters at Gilgal. Their bags are packed, the kids have been fed, the sheep and goats are bleating in the background. They just need to know where they're going. But before Joshua can get the words out of his mouth, Caleb, the tribal head, steps in and says, Now hold on a minute. I was promised land personally by Moses. And before there is any divvying up, I want what is coming to me. I've waited 45 years for this and I'm not going to miss out now. And of course, this takes us back to the time just after Israel had escaped Egypt. They'd passed through the Red Sea. They'd come to the edge of Canaan and Moses sent out 12 spies to survey the land at the command of God. You can read about that in Numbers 13 verse 1. And a spy was assigned from each of the 12 tribes. Caleb went for Judah. Joshua went for Ephraim. And the spies returned with a good report about the land, how it was flowing with milk and honey. It had good crops. It was a good land. But they also came back with a bad report about the inhabitants. Ten spies spoke with fear about the giants in the land, the Anakim. And they caused the heart of the people of Israel to melt with fear. Caleb and Joshua were the only spies who tried to speak faith into people's hearts. And of the two, Caleb was the most vocal. We read from Numbers 13, verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. So here's Caleb, full of fire, full of vigour, ready to go and take the land. But unfortunately, the voice of fear triumphed over Caleb's voice of faith that day. And as a result, the Lord was ready to disinherit the children of Israel from the land and raise up a new nation from Moses. But Moses interceded for the people and the Lord relented. But as well as, as, well as relenting, the Lord said this. And I'm reading from Numbers 14 verses 22 to 24. Numbers 14 verses 22 to 24, where it says, Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. So it's a completely new generation that's come into the promised land 
with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. And Caleb remembered this word from God, this promise from God. And it had been the lifeblood that had kept him going those last 45 years. I've been promised a peace in the land. I've been promised a place in the land. And now, standing on the word of God, he was going to claim that promise at last. And we read there in verse 6, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. And as Caleb says these words, he is speaking directly to Joshua on this matter. And as their eyes meet, they remember what happened all those years ago. He is bringing the testimony of Moses as evidence. He's calling Joshua as a witness in this case. And he's bringing the word of God to bear on the matter. And so we read in verse 11. As yet as I I am as strong this day as I was on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. The Lord had preserved Caleb all these years. If you might remember last time in Joshua 13 verse 1, he said that Joshua was old and advanced in years. But Caleb is still fighting fit with steel in his veins. Even in old age, he's ready to stand. He's ready to fight. He's ready to press in to what is promised in him. And I'm a firm believer that you can still be on fire for God. You can still stand. You can still fight. You can still press in to the promises of God, even in old age. There is nothing to stop you being effective in service to God right until the time that he comes to take you home. And Caleb had spotted a nice bit of real estate 45 years ago. And now he wants it. And we read in verse 12. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. Uh, For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord uh, will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord has said. He doesn't care that the Anakim are on this mountain. He wants his inheritance. I've been wanting to fight me and Anakin for 45 years. I want to fight. I want the victory. I want to prove what I said all those years ago that we can defeat the Anakin. And he he says, we are well able to overcome it. That fighting spirit is inside of him. He wants to go for it. And so we read in verses 13 and 14, And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. And Hebron therefore became an inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Caleb came into the fullness of his inheritance because he wholly followed the Lord. Or I prefer the NIV translation where it says, because, of, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Caleb served God with his whole heart and because he served God with his whole heart he came into the fullness of everything that was promised to him and if we want to come into the fullness of God we too need to be those who serve God with a whole heart you see Caleb is a picture of the victorious Christian you might remember uh, when back when we were looking at chapter six that I talked about two types of Christian 
You have the wilderness Christian and you have the warrior Christian. The wilderness Christian is, is the Christian in the mould of those who just of those Israelites who remained in the wilderness, going round and round, never going forward and coming into the promises of God. Paul described the wilderness Christian as carnal in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 to 4, a carnal Christian. And a carnal Christian, a wilderness Christian, despite being a Christian perhaps for many years, are those who remain babes in Christ, never moving on to maturity, always struggling with besetting sins, never reaching a place of victory, hearing spiritual teaching, but never fully accepting it or applying it to their lives. They may have knowledge, but they don't have discernment. They may be saved, but they never become truly spiritual. And then you've got the other type of Christian, the warrior Christian, the one that presses into the promised land, that fights the enemies and comes to a place of victory and full inheritance. Paul describes this type of Christian in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 to 4 as a spiritual person, a spiritual Christian. And the warrior Christian, regardless of their age in Christ, is moving forward in their walk. The warrior Christian is pursuing Christ. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They go where the Spirit directs them. They do as the Spirit instructs them. They live by faith, not by sight. They read scripture, not merely to gain knowledge, but to hear the voice of God. They walk toward the fight and seek to crucify the flesh. Their goal is not their comfort, but the glory of God. They're ready to stand. They're ready to fight. They want the victory and they want their inheritance, the fullness of Christ, as it says in Ephesians 4.13. And that is who Caleb typifies here, the warrior Christian. He stood in faith when everyone else around him fell in fear. He looked with faith at what God promised in Canaan. He believed in his heart that with God, all enemies and obstacles could be overcome. He held fast the promise of God for 45 years. He did not cease fighting until he came into the fullness of his inheritance. And this is our model. This is the person the Lord wants us to be in Jesus Christ. It's not about who we are by birth or by nature. It's who we can become by new birth and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Caleb followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. And that is where the walk of victory begins. You give yourself wholeheartedly to God. You acknowledge your faults, your failings and your fears. You ask God to forgive your sins and then you ask God to change your heart. You cry out to God, give me a new heart. Give me a new spirit. I'm reminded of the words <clears throat> of that great Welsh hymnist where he said, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me now. Open now the crystal fountain, whence the healing stream doth flow. Let the fiery, cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. Strong deliverer, strong deliverer, be thou still my strength and shield. That hymn talks about a man who is wholly dependent and reliant upon God, 
a person who is wholeheartedly serving God, letting God lead and looking to God for strength, power and guidance. That's who Caleb is. That's who God wants us to be. And it's interesting to note, Caleb was a Kenizzite. It says it repeatedly there in that chapter, Caleb was a Kenizzite. And if you don't know who the Kenizzites were, they were one of the original Canaanite nations that lived in the land. If you were to go to Genesis 15 verse 9, it says there that the Kenizzites were original Canaanite uh, nation. And so being a Kenizzite, they were people destined for destruction. Yet through some means that we don't know about, Caleb's ancestry collided with that of the tribe of Judah and he was adopted into that tribe. He rejected his Canaanite past and he became a convert to to Judaism. Maybe not him, maybe one of his ancestors. We don't know the story. And while Caleb never shook the mantle of his biological past, he's always referred to as a Kenizzite, it did not stop him from pursuing his spiritual future and destiny. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your past is, what you have been involved in. The past should not hold you back from pressing forward and pursuing your spiritual future in Jesus Christ. Don't let who you are by birth stop you from being who you can be in Jesus Christ. So now we go on to chapter 15, reading from verse 1. This then was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah according to their families. The border of Edom at the wilderness of Zin southward was the extreme southern boundary and their southern border began at the shore of the Salt Sea from the bay that faces southward. Then it went out to the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, passed along to Zin, ascended on the south side of Kadesh Barnea, passed along to Hezron, went up to Adar and went round to Karkar. From there it passed towards Asmon and went out to the brook of Egypt and the border ended at the sea. This shall be your southern border. The east border was the Salt Sea as far as the mouth of the Jordan and the border on the northern quarter began at the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. The border went up to Beth Hogla and passed north of Beth Arabah and the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. Then the border went up towards Debir from the valley of Achor And it turned northward towards Gilgal, which is before the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley. The border continued towards the waters of En-Shemesh and ended at En-Rogel. And the border went up by the valley of the son of Hinnom to to the south slope of the Jebusite city, which is Jerusalem. The border went up to the top of the mountain that lies before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of Rephaim northward. Then the border went around from the top of the hill to the fountain of the water of Nephtoah and extended to the cities of Mount Ephron and the border went around to Bala, which is Kirjath-Jirim. Then to the border turns westward from Bala to Mount Seir, passed along to the side of Mount Jirim on the north, which is Chesalon, went down to Beth Shemesh and passed on to Timnah. And the border went out to the side of Ekron northward. Then the border went around to Shikron, passed along to Mount Balar and extended to Jabneel, and the border ended at the sea. The west border was the coastline of the Great Sea. This is the boundary of the children of Judah all around according to their family. 
Now, I don't imagine for one minute you followed all of that. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, you'll be able to see the outline possibly of the territory of Judah that was assigned to them. And even though uh, uh, it, uh, it might seem tedious to us going through these names and lists, this was gold dust to the people of Israel. You see, the matter of Caleb's inheritance having been settled, the matter of the inheritance for the tribe which he is head, namely Judah, is addressed. And these are the boundaries which are clearly defined for Judah's territory. These are effectively the total deeds for the tribe. And Caleb's inheritance is actually located within the total deeds of his tribe, Judah. Also uh, within the total deeds of Judah is Jerusalem. Now, at this time, Jerusalem is currently occupied by the Jebusites. The Jebusites are a Canaanite people, and we can read about that in Joshua 15, verse 8 there, that Jerusalem is occupied by the Jebusites. So they are effectively unlawful tenants. They've been given, so Judah's been given the title deeds. This is your land, you own it now, but you've got some tenants on your land, and they're unlawfully there. They're squatters. And it's interesting, both Caleb and Judah have land yet to claim. They've got fights yet to fight, Canaanites yet to drive out, tenants to evict. Now, shall we see how they get on with their respective unlawful tenants and how well they get on with their eviction? We're going to look at Caleb first. So, read there in verse 13. Now, to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a portion among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirjath Arba, which is in Hebron. Arba was formerly of Anak. Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Shishai, Ahiman and Talmai, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Debir. Formerly the name of Debir was Kirjath Sipha. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kirjath Sipha and takes it, to him I will give Achsaf, my daughter, as wife. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it. And he gave Achsa his daughter as wife. Now it was so when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? She answered, Give me a blessing since you have given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So how did Caleb get on with evicting his unlawful talents? Well, we see there in verse 14 that he drove out three giants he got the anakim he'd been waiting for for 45 years he got that feather in his cap and uh, the names of these three giants are given to us uh, uh, shishai achiman and talmai shishai seems a bit of an unfortunate name for a giant uh, shishai but uh, not that i would say that to his face of course um but again, we have a picture here of the victorious Christian life. These, there are giants in Caleb's life, but he overcomes them. Just as there can be giants in our life that needed to be dealt with as well. And these giants might come in the form of bad habits, ungodly influences, wrong attitudes of heart, besetting sins, uh, bad relationships, they can come in any number of different shapes and forms. 
And these are giants that need to be dealt with in our lives. But whatever God calls us to address in our lives, God equips us to deal with those issues in our life. We don't deal them alone in our own strength. God equips us with the power of his Holy Spirit to be able to do that which he calls us to do. Now, let's go on to the matter of Debir here. Caleb's not done having taken Hebron. He, uh, he sees greater potential for inheritance. A place named Debir is ripe for the taking. It's as if one enemy is dealt with only to reveal another enemy that has to be addressed. And this in many ways is the pattern of the healthy warrior Christian life. An area of the old man is dealt with and only to reveal another area of your life that needs to be dealt with. You crucify part of the flesh only to find that there's another area of flesh that needs to be dealt with. And in this case, it is this territory called Debir. Interestingly, Debir had previously been taken by Israel. And we can read about that in Joshua 10 verses 38 to 39. So when they'd first done their lightning attack throughout the land, they'd taken Debir. But it appears that the Canaanites had sought to reoccupy the city. Thus, Israel would have to fight for Debir once again. And isn't this just a picture of the flesh? It is relentless and ruthless, never giving up. Our flesh is always seeking to regain lost territory in our lives. And we need to be on our guard, always bringing it into subjection to Christ. Sin is always trying to creep in and retake the territory that Jesus Christ has taken in our lives. Don't drop our guard as they did in Debir. Now Caleb provides an incentive to fight a prize, namely his daughter's hand in marriage. And we see here that Caleb was not only a man of faith and courage who pressed into the fullness of God, Caleb was also a man who encouraged others to be men of faith and courage and encouraged others to press into the fullness of God. And that is what he's doing. He's encouraging a fighting spirit here within these uh, people of his tribe. And again, this is the pattern of the healthy warrior Christian life. A healthy Christian is always seeking to encourage others forward in their walk with Jesus, always trying to strengthen and fortify them for the battle. Now, in offering his daughter to the victor, we could easily assume that he is somehow devaluing his daughter, uh, making her a prize. But that is not the case. There would have been many suitors for his daughter. And what he is doing is he's testing any potential suitors to ensure that they are worthy of his daughter. He's looking for someone with the same faith and fight he has. Someone who is a good spiritual match for his daughter. Someone who can defend and who can provide. And what better test than for them to go up and take the city of Debir. And I would say that any good Christian father will scrutinise any potential suitors for their daughter. I certainly know that Ian put Johnny to the task uh, when he came a-knocking, asking him five questions, I seem to remember. And uh, it's actually 11 years this week that Abby's father came down from Portsmouth while I was working on a bathroom in East Peckham and took me out for a meal at uh, the hop farm and quizzed me. 
His opening gambit is, are you able to keep my daughter in the means to which she has become accustomed? And uh, the questions just got harder from there, believe you me. But thoroughly grilled. But, you know, the father testing of a potential son-in-law serves to show the love that father has for his daughter. That he won't let his daughter marry any old ragamuffin, but make sure that this person is a good match. And I believe here we see Caleb's love for his daughter being demonstrated. And who is it that takes Debir? None other than Othniel, Caleb's nephew. Uh, he bravely took Debir, but perhaps more bravely took on Caleb as a father-in-law and Caleb's daughter as his cousin and, uh, as his, sorry, as his wife. So Caleb's daughter is Achsa, we're told in that passage. And Caleb's daughter demonstrates the same boldness that is displayed in her father because she seeks a blessing from her father the same way that Caleb sought his blessing. And so we see that Caleb had passed on something of his spiritual uh, health and vigour to his daughter. And of course, she is rewarded with land in the south where she has two springs, two fountains of life. The occasion of this request is when Caleb brings Aksa to Othniel on a donkey. Aksa persuades Othniel to make the request of his new father-in-law, but Caleb, perceiving that something was afoot, preempts the request with a question, and Aksa asks herself, um, uh, makes the request herself for the land. Now she had already been given land in the south, in the Negev, uh, which is a dry, arid land, and to really make any good uh, use of, of area in the Negev, in that dry land, you need water uh, because it is a dry land. And so springs are essential to make the land productive and to bear fruit. And so this is why she's requesting waters and she's given the upper and the lower springs. And with that, she's able to cultivate the land, uh, grow crops and make it productive. But in the same way, we have been given land in the word of God. But by itself, the word of God can be a dry and a barren land if we're not careful. But when the fountain of the Holy Spirit is added to the word of God, it brings it to life and it bears fruit in our lives. That's why whenever I read the word of God, I always make sure that I'm in a right relationship with God. And I ask for the blessing of God upon the reading of the word of God. And certainly at the beginning of this Bible study, we ask the same for the same reason. Now, just one last thing before we move on. Othniel. It is worthy of note that Othniel, the wife of Aksa, the nephew of Caleb, would be raised up by God to become the first judge of Israel. In Judges chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, we read about Othniel. And that put me in mind of Luke 16, verse 10, where it says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. Othniel was faithful over a little thing, uh, over a little city uh, named Debir. And the Lord honoured that. And knowing that Othniel would be faithful in much, he then gave him that position of judge over the whole of Israel. He was faithful over a little thing named Debir, and then he became faithful in much, namely the whole of Israel. And as servants of God, we should be faithful in what we have been given. A 
And in so doing, the Lord will may well honour us with much. Be faithful in the little that we've been given, and in time God may give us much. So, I do want to complete the chapter, and there's no way to make this interesting, so brace yourself. In the matter of inheritance, Caleb fought to claim the full inheritance. The enemies were dealt with, but how did Judah get on? Well, as we carry on reading, we read about um, the cities that they claimed in their territory. We read about the southern, uh, southeastern cities in verses 20 to uh, onwards. This was the east. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the Judah. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah, according to their families. The cities at the limits of the tribe of the children of Judah, towards the border of Edom in the south, were Kabzeel, Eda, Jaguar, Kaina, Dimana, Adadar, Kadesh, Hazor, Ithnan, Ziph, Telem, Bealoth, Hazor, Hadatar, Kirioth, Hezron, which is Hazor, Amam, Shema, Molada, Hazar, Gadar, Heshmon, Beth Palet, Hazar Shual, Beersheba, Bizjothjah, Bala, Ijim, Ezem, El Tolad, Chesel, Horma, Ziklag, Madmana, Sansana, Lebeoth, Shilhim, Ain, and Rimon. All the cities are 29 with their villages. Now, I don't know whether any of you were counting those cities as we went. If you were to count them, there are not 20, uh, there are 29 cities given as the count, but actually there are 39 cities named. The difference of 10 can be explained that later on, the territory assigned to Simeon would actually be within the land of Judah. So Judah would surround the whole of Simeon and those 10 cities would be assigned to Simeon. That's why 29 cities are given as the count for Judah, not the 39 listed there. We carry on in verse 33. In the lowland, Eshtael, Zorah, Ashna, Zanoah, Enganim, Tapua, Enam, Jamuth, Adulam, Sokol, Ezekar, Sharaim, Adithaim, Gedorah, and Gedorothaim, 14 cities with their villages. Zinan, Hadashah, Migdalgad, Delin, Mizbah, Jokthil, Lakish, Bozkath, Eglon, Kapon, or Kabon, Lamas, Kithlish, Gedoroth, Beth Dagon, Namar, and Makadar, 16 cities with their villages. Libna, Ether, Ashan, Jiftar, Ashna, Nezeb, Kila, Achzib, and Masha, 9 cities with their villages. Ekron with its towns and villages. From Ekron to the sea, all that lay near Ashdod with their villages, Ashdod with its towns and villages, Gaza with its towns and villages as far as the brook of Egypt and the great sea with its coastline. And in the mountain country, Shamir, Jatir, Sakoa, Danar, Kirjath, Sanar, which is Debir, Anab, Eshtamo, Anim, Goshen, Holon and Gilo, 11 cities with their villages. Arab, Duma, Eshin, Janum, Beth Tapua, Afaka, Hamtar, Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, and Zion, nine cities with their villages. Maon, Carmel, Ziph, Judah, Jezreel, Jokdim, Zanoa, Cain, Gibeah, and Timnah, ten cities with their villages. Halhul, Beth, Zu, Gedor, 
Marath, Beth, Anoth, and Eltakon, six cities with their villages. Kirjath Baal, which is Kirjath Jerim, and Rabah, two cities with their villages. And in the wilderness, Beth Arabah, Midin, Sakakar, Nibshan, the city of Salt, and Engedi, six cities with their villages. So, in all of these, and thank you for sticking with me, um, we see a great amount of land that has been taken, a great number of cities that are populated, and a great number of enemies that are defeated. And at first glance, it looks like Judah did extremely well. And who wouldn't be pleased with all of that land? But there is one sour point, and that is verse 63, our last verse for this morning. We read there, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah in Jerusalem to this day. Jerusalem, the future capital of Israel, was not conquered and remained in the possession of the Canaanite tribe, the Jebusites. And they would remain in Jerusalem right up until the time of King David. It would be King David who would come to conquer it 390 years later. 390 years tolerating the Jebusites in the land. You can read about that conquering, that victory in 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 to 10. And then, of course, Jerusalem would become the political and religious capital of Israel. This marks a failure on the part of the children of Judah. Jerusalem, of course, lies on the top of a hill and making it a hard place, a hard city to capture. But I'm reminded of Jeremiah 32, 27, that says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Judah effectively said, it's too hard to take Jerusalem. We will learn to live with the Jebusites in the land. And the parallel with our Christian walk is this, that we learn to live with sin in our lives. Learning to live with the Jebusites in the land is parallel to us, learning to live with sin in our life. Sin is something that God has clearly prohibited, but we've compromised with. It's too hard to address. It comes at too high a price to deal with. It's not worth the effort. That's the attitude of the Israelites. And that's the attitude of a Christian who learns to tolerate sin in their lives. It says there in verse uh, 63, Judah could not drive them out. Why could they not drive them out? Well, we know for a fact it's not God's fault. God did not provide them any lack of resources to drive out the Jebusites. All they need was at hand for them to tap into. The fault lies fair and square with the children of Judah. The promise of God was very clear back in Joshua chapter 1 verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. And God does not issue a command without providing the resources to help you carry out that command. If he calls you, he will equip you. We saw in Caleb a man provided with the same promises as Judah, provided with the same resources as Judah, yet he succeeded where Judah failed. Caleb asked for the toughest plot of land. He had Anakim to deal with, but his faith rose 
to meet with his request. God equipped Caleb because of his faith to slay these giants. The children of Judah, quite simply, did not have the faith to press into the fullness of God. They did not rely fully on the resources God had provided. And when we fail to rely upon God's resources, what we end up doing is trying to do things in our own strength. And when we try to do things in our own strength, we will always meet with defeat. And what a defeat that was for the people of Judah. The Lord intended to dwell on Mount Zion in Jerusalem at the heart of Judah. And Judah's failure to drive out the Jebusites meant that the purposes of God were held back for 390 years. The purposes of God were held back. And when we don't press forward into the fullness of God, when we don't rely upon the resources of God, we hold back the purposes of God in our lives. Judah speaks of an incomplete work. Don't let that be spoken of us. Don't be a Judah Christian, learning to live with sin and defeat. Be a Caleb Christian, where you follow the Lord wholeheartedly. The temptation for the Judah Christian, of course, is to look at the Caleb Christian and label them as fanatics. The temptation is to say, it's unrealistic to expect that level of dedication from everyone. God doesn't make everyone a Caleb, you know. God can take anyone who wants to be a Caleb and he can make them a Caleb if they want to. God is looking for wholehearted devotion. And when you give him that, he can take you and he can do marvellous things. It's not about your strength. It's about relying upon his resources. God promises rich reward and inheritance for anyone who picks up the challenge. I've dwelt in the camp of Judah. I've lived with the Jebusites at my, as my neighbour, but not any longer. I want to be a Caleb. I want to be an Othniel. I know God can make me that man. What about you? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that which we have seen in your word this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would confirm your word to our hearts. Give us the vim, the vigour, the, the faith, the wholehearted devotion that Caleb had. And help us to press into the fullness that is in Christ. The fullness of the inheritance that you have for us. Help us to perform great and mighty works to the glory and the honour of your name. We pray. Amen.